battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. We are now in overtime, freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC censors. If you're listening to us as a podcast, especially Apple Podcasts, but any podcast, if you're listening to us as a podcast, like the show, give us five stars and subscribe. Um, Even if you aren't listening as a podcast, yeah. but you do use a podcast app, if you use Apple Podcast or uh, Spotify or whatever, take just a few seconds, go on there, give us a good review. It really does help. Uh, you know, we don't have Coke Brother money to advertise our programming like some people yep. in the yep. South. Yeah. So, um, so Adam, you uh, you you unionized your workplace. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about that. Okay, sure. Uh, let's talk about it. Yeah. And I, so that's one of the things, actually, that. That you know, people talk about when 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 you're talking about a union, the the first thing that even a lot of labor sympathetic, union sympathetic people that they think is that oh, when your workplace is bad, then you unionize, and that's actually the only time that you even need to unionize because if you have a good workplace, you have a good boss, you have good compensation, and everything like that, you don't need a union. You don't actually need a union if you know your work is fine. Um, so it are are you telling the world by unionizing in Alabama Rise that it's a terrible place to work? <laughs> I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because that really is at the heart of this campaign is is the fact that uh, it is not a terrible place to work. It's a great place to work. Actually, we love our bosses, right? Uh, we love our leadership. We love the board. Um, we love the work that we do, and so yeah. A lot of people have that misconception, but the conversations that we had amongst ourselves was, you know, that's the right time to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Take advantage of the fact that we do have good leadership and we do have good things in place that we like, uh, because wouldn't it be great to lock that in, right? Uh, and so, yeah, it's one of those campaigns where everybody was pretty happy, honestly, to, to start, right? And, and that's a good foundation. Right. Um, and so folks are pretty happy. Uh, of course, there are things that we want to address and things that we want to tweak and things that we want to add in terms of the collective bargaining process. But really, this this was a campaign that was about coming together as co-workers, uh, unionizing as a matter of principle and as a way to lock in the things that we do like, mm. because, you know, bosses can change. Right. People, right. I, I experienced that early in my career at AEA, where um, one of the leaders of AEA actually passed away in a car accident very unexpectedly. He was mm. a young man, had a young child. Um, 
it, it definitely changed the dynamics of the organization. Right. Um, and so those things happen. And you can't just rely on the fact that, well, things are good now. You know, my boss is good now. Things can always change. Um, and, you know, this is a nonprofit. So I think it was really important that, you know, Alabama Rise really lives up to its values. And I think the fact that we advocate for working people in Alabama in our day jobs, it only made sense that we would be a unionized shop. Um, and it only made sense that we would have nothing but, you know, good faith collaboration from leadership because it is an organization that I truly can believe in. It's an organization that practices what it preaches. And that's important right. because we have seen a lot of organizing across the nonprofit industry and not all nonprofits have responded positively. Right. And so, yeah, I want to emphasize that, uh, you know, we we did this campaign and uh, we approached leadership and asked for voluntary recognition and they were very happy to do so. Um, and so it, it was a great experience, really, in bringing me closer to my coworkers and getting to know them better. Um, you know, I started in August with Alabama Rise and pretty quickly coworkers were bending my ear and we're like, hey, Adam, you're the most union guy we know of. You literally talk about unions every week on the radio. So, like, you know some stuff about this, right? And um, we got to talking, and it turns out folks had already had conversations amongst themselves internally for a while now about unionizing. They had seen other nonprofits, including in our mm -hmm. policy networks, that have unionized recently. Um, you know, and just a couple of folks had worked in union experiences uh, in political campaigns. And so there was just this vibe that, yeah, things are pretty good here, but we should definitely have a union. Right. Right. Uh, and that was kind of how the conversations got started. And so, uh, you know, as talking to some of those coworkers, we put together an organizing committee and um, there were four of us, one from each of our four departments. Uh, there are 14 total on staff. So that was a really good, you know, ratio, I feel like. Uh, it was uh, easy enough for us on the organizing committee to assign our one-on-ones. And so just to get to the practical aspect of, of what happened is it started with conversations. Mm. The conversations became uh, Google Meets every Sunday evening with the four of us as an organizing committee. And... You know, we were the folks who were interested in making this happen and we're determined that we were going to make it happen. And so uh, from there, we took the list of the employees and we, you know, had one on one conversations with folks uh, and kept kept track of that. Um, and, you know, really proud that over the uh, short campaign, it only took a few months because everybody, you know, everybody working at a place like Alabama Rise shares certain values, mm -hmm. or at least you would hope. And in this case, that's the case um you know so that made it a lot easier right I, i'm not going to lie to folks and 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 say that the typical worker organizing campaign is going to be like this um but we came into it with 14 folks who are all interested in working for progressive policy in alabama um all had at least some understanding that unions are positive right mm -hmm. maybe not tons of experience with them or how they work, but um, at least that understanding. And so, you know, it was pretty easy to build from there. And uh, in November, we had held a card signing party at our staff retreat. And uh, all 14 of us gathered in the hotel room and signed our cards. 
and our union membership cards as well. So that's important. Uh, we not only authorized the union unanimously, we all unanimously joined the union. Uh, we worked with CWA, Local 3908 out of Montgomery. Uh, shout out to their president, Luther Land, or I guess my president, Luther Land. Um, he's been a great supporter, uh, really just been cheering us on and, and offering any kind of support he could. Uh, Cassie with CWA is great as well, an organizer, gave us some experience, uh, experience you know, tips. And so, um, you know, we're really excited to be part of the labor movement officially. Uh, we're, we're proud to be part of CWA. Uh, right now, where we're at, we did a joint press release last week, um, I guess it was, or this week, this past week. Um, when you get voluntary recognition, there is a 45-day waiting period wherein an employee can actually file an objection, more or less, mm. and request that there be an official NLRB election, right? So you can do card check. That is possible, even under these current you know, laws. It's just that there are ways uh, for anti-forces to push back against that. Uh, of course, you know, we didn't have that happen with our union. Um, so once that time had passed, we felt really good about just going public, uh, having a joint statement between leadership and the staff union. And now we're in the, the pre-bargaining phase. We're getting ready to jump into collective bargaining to negotiate a first contract. Uh, so where we're at now is just getting input from everybody. Uh, we're still doing our weekly organizing committee calls. We have grown our organizing committee by two people. Uh, we have elected stewards and bargaining representatives. And so right now we're just trying to gather everyone's feedback, get the input from folks. What do you want to see? Uh, what do you want to change? What do you want to protect? What are the things mm -hmm. that you like that you want to you know, keep it in writing uh, and, and for the long term? Um, you know, and it's a nonprofit, right? So we recognize that it's not the same as going up against AT&T. Mm -hmm. or Amazon, right, right, where there there's unlimited resources just about. Uh, and you know there's always more on the table to grab, right? We, we get that, you know. Uh, so salaries are always tricky when it comes to nonprofits, but there's other areas where, you know, we hope to find good collaboration uh, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, leave policies or other benefits just to uh, really recruit and retain good folks and furthermore, we think having a union contract will help on that, right? Because um, the types of folks who want to do what we do, you know, community organizing and policy work and advocacy, they want to do that in a union shop. And right. uh, I'm proud to say they can do that at Alabama Rise as a union shop. Uh, I think it's also uh, a big part, a big step forward in growing the community labor coalitions that we need in this state. Um, you know, Alabama Rise is a coalition of over 150 groups, uh, as well as, you know, individual members as well. Uh, those 150 groups include churches, congregations, and other faith-based groups, but also other civic groups, nonprofits, grassroots organizations, um, direct service organizations, even a couple of labor uh, federations and labor unions, including the North Alabama Labor Council, I'm proud yeah. to report. And so that's just really cool to see that coalescing of forces, right? Uh, from, the, from the churches, from the community, from the neighborhoods, 
uh, and from our unions. The more we join forces and push in the same direction, the stronger we're going to be. Uh, so I'm excited about what this means in the future for our staff uh, and, and, you know, the, the security and stability for our staff and protecting the folks who do this good work, uh, stability and security for the organization moving forward, uh, and just for the potential to grow that labor community coalition. Let's get more labor unions inside of Alabama Rise, yep. right? And this also see more nonprofits unionize. Um, I would love to see that as well. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, I hope that it inspires folks and other nonprofits to, to know that they can do this. It's possible. Um, and, and like I said, I hope it really inspires labor unions across the state of Alabama to get engaged with what we're doing at Alabama Rise because we're advocating for working people in Montgomery every day. That's what our labor unions are supposed to be doing as well, right? And so the more we can work together, the more we can accomplish. Um, have we got the folks from Kentucky in the, on the line yet? Let's see. Let me check. How many are we, are we expecting, Jacob? Expecting two, I think. Okay. One or two. All right. Cool. Uh, I think we got one in the, in the Zoom. You want to give it a, a yeah. second? Yeah. Let's, well, let's go ahead and, and bring them in and, and okay, we cool. can them introduce themselves while they, uh, while I wait for the, the second one, if there is going to be a second one. Okay, sure, yeah. Um cool. They should be they should be good now. All right. So is this uh have we got uh Griffin on the line? I can't hear him if they're yeah, are they talking? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. This is Fatu. Griffin is about to connect now. She uh, he apologized for being a couple of minutes late. Oh yeah. No worries, no worries. Griffin said that, that you'd be joining as well. Um, I, I can't see the Zoom uh, screen from here. so. Uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time to join, uh, and I really am inspired by the work that y'all are doing at Amazon in Kentucky. Uh, can you talk to us about how you got involved in, in the union campaign and what made you want to be a part of it? So um, last year... Um, first of all, I'm going to talk about a little bit of my background so you can understand why this union is important to me. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 years ago, I started helping the new immigrant that come to this uh, area, Kentucky, Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati area, because I realized like uh, 24 years ago when I came here, I didn't have that help, that guidance. Mm -hmm. So I started helping them applying for job housing. Uh, anything that is related to something that will help them uh, integrate in the Northern Kentucky area. So um, it was easy. It was hard the first time. And then it became a little bit easy because I have a job uh, as a recruiter. So it was easy mm -hmm. for me to give them a job. Uh, I still work as a recruiter. However, I am working uh, in the hospital uh, recruiting nurses. So most of my people that I help, I'm not able to hire them as a nurse because they're looking for a warehouse job. So I still was volunteering on my weekend and day off to take them to, to look for a job. And suddenly, Amazon stopped. Like, I cannot hire them. I, they don't speak English in the new hub. I, they don't speak English. 
So a lot of my people that used to work to the um, Amazon that they close, they got fired because wow. they have language barrier. So I was walking and I went and talked to HR and they literally like put on the application, you have to speak English. They talked to me, say, you know, we're trying to get them in. So just be patient for me. After two, three months, I'm waiting and I go there every day and talk to them. And uh, one day I was taking this girl to apply and they refused to hire her. So I was so frustrated. So I was driving back home and in the street, I saw the union. I was not familiar with union at all. So I stopped. I'm like, what you guys do for Amazon? Because I was hoping they can help me, right. you know, uh, with right. the Amazon. Because I thought they were like uh, the HR and stuff. And the guy explained that, you know, we are fighting for Amazon to do translation, to do this. Mm. Do you work at Amazon? I say, I don't work for Amazon, but I can, you know, back you out with people who work for Amazon because what you're fighting, that's what I'm fighting in the back, but I'm alone. So I would like mm. to join you guys so we can fight as a group. So that's when I got the decision to reach out to all the community leadership that I know the African community, the mosque, the stores, because most people know me because the work I do behind the scene. So I will I reach out to them and all of them was happy to join us. So we created like a WhatsApp group to give them information. A lot of the immigrant people who were scared, most of them are still scared, but they still signing the card. They still doing the job behind the scene. You know, they might not be um, they might still scared to have like an interview like this or mm, uh, put their right. face out there, but they are behind us 100%, which is amazing, which they was not before. So the community working together make that happen. That's, uh, I mean, that that's such a fantastic, um, th that's so great that you mentioned that because we just had another conversation in the first half of the program about, uh, you know, the importance of community uh, community relationships in Tennessee and in, in some of their organizing that they've been doing. And, and so actually ha having a little bit more fidelity about, uh, on, on your position, a little bit more understanding, you're not actually, you don't actually work for Amazon, but you are, uh, you know, you're in, uh, you know, a community organization, uh, particularly organizing around supporting the immigrant community there in northern Kentucky and the Cincinnati area. And so once you found, you know, once you saw that the union was organizing at, uh, at, at Amazon in Kentucky, you were able to kind of, you were able to get on board and, and really support the union campaign in a way that, that they were, you know, there was a bit of a, you know, maybe a language barrier or a culture barrier or whatever it was, the union wasn't able to reach this community uh, before you came on in support of the campaign. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, exactly. Well, that, that's uh, Griffin. Are are you the one that that she uh, talked to originally? No, no, I I don't believe so. Um, but you know, that's uh, the importance of building the profile of this campaign. I think you know we, you know, a few months back, four, five, six months back, we uh, yeah, really started developing out a program to draw our you know immigrant coworkers into this work, and you know, we ran a translation uh, petition. 
to demand that Amazon provide ESO classes for any coworkers mm. that want to improve their English proficiency, uh, to provide translation and HR and any management, any disciplinary conversation. And, you know, we met Fatsu around that time because, yeah, Fatsu agreed with the importance to fight for these issues, you know, and her experience working as a recruiter for several agencies in the area is somebody who's, yeah, very tied in to the issues that immigrant workers face every day on the job. And, uh, you know, I think, yeah, in the last six months, we've been able to build a really dynamic campaign that, you know, I think a lot of times, especially for recent uh, arrivals to the U.S., um, you know, you are used to walking past a lot of things in your day-to-day mm-hmm. life. And, you know, I think a lot of people maybe just thought, like, I don't know what they're doing, but maybe it's not for me. Like, most things are run past. And uh, I think we've put in the work to really demonstrate um, that this union's for everybody that works here. You know, that we're going to fight together for basic things that we need, like a $30 an hour wage. Um, make sure that, you know, we have translation on the job, that people know they're being disciplined or even fired. In many cases, mm-hmm. people don't know what's happening. Um, right. The company doesn't, like they do even at some other facilities in the region. They don't provide the translation services that people mm-hmm. need. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, from day one, we've had all our material translated in English, you know, French, Spanish. And, uh, you know, having a, a strong community ally like Feltu, who's connected to hundreds and hundreds of Amazon workers and their families in the area, um, you know, really helps us uh, reach those right. workers and their families, um, you know, in addition to Ahsoka and others that have been involved in the organizing inside the uh, warehouse. We uh, we had somebody from uh, y'all's campaign on in early December, and they said that at that time y'all had reached a thousand cards signed. Do you have any uh, any updates on on that? Yeah, I mean, um, at this stage, you know, we've collected well over a thousand cards at KCVG. Um, you know, our strength at this moment isn't really based on, you know, there's a 30% hurdle for the unit um, in order to trigger an LRB election. But I think, yeah, the best way to explain it is that last year we proved that we were a union by fighting around our demands, by right. taking workplace action, you know, to demand Amazon drop retaliatory, you know, attacks on our union. Um, and now we're taking a step, you know, launching um, a survey weeks ago and now a vote on our independent union constitution. You know, refining our workers in just the last couple weeks indicated that, yeah, they agree that, uh, you know, workers um, can afford to pay $30 a month, you know, in union dues uh, to fight for a decent contract, to fight for 30 and other things that, you know, our union should have the right to recall elected leadership, that our membership's the highest decision-making body in the union. And um, now, you know, we're going through with that ratification vote. Um, You know, we're aiming to have a thousand co-workers uh, sign on to that. And Mm. that's a real structure test for the kind of democratic union that we want to build. And then from there, you know, and this helps us cut through Amazon's lies. Oh, uh, some union bureaucrat somewhere is going to decide everything for you. And Right. You might pay $100 in dues a day or a week or a year. We never know. <laughs> you know, all these lies that they right. they put forward. And um, so to have, you know, over a quarter of the workforce say, wait, 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 I voted on what the dues should be. Right. <laughs> You're not going to come here and tell me what is going on. Um, it's a real structure test for us, and it prepares mm-hmm. us to file for an NLRB election um, and ultimately take workplace action to fight this company because we know from Staten Island and other examples that Amazon's not going to, 
sit down at the bargaining table. We're going to have to drag them there every step of the way. Y'all are organizing with uh, ALU. When you're talking about your the new constitution, is this for ALU nationwide or is this for ALU in Kentucky? Yeah, we've obviously inspired by the example that Amazon Labor Union set in New York, you know, with their victory, their historic victory, you know, and raising the $30 an hour demand. Um, that's something that we took up and that the Amazon Teamsters, you know, and other organizing efforts are taking up. I think that's very positive that that's becoming a, you know, broad demand on the labor movement. And um, yeah, we're forming our independent union at KCVG. Um, you know, we believe that, yeah, KCVG workers uh, should have the right to, you know, draft our constitution and to vote on it. Um, and that's what we're doing now. Okay, so this is this is a an independent even of of ALU. This is y'all's constitution, right? And we've had, I mean, many ALU activists from New York out here um, working alongside us. You know, offering lessons that they've learned. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is a, a campaign uh, for KCBG, and you know, we're drawing up our own uh, constitution and bylaws so that. Um, yeah, we can give our coworkers a voice at KCVG and fight for what we need. I think that's really important, the fact that y'all are, are working to build a democratic union and, and organize and act like a union before there's even an election, before, you know, the government or the boss has recognized you per se, um, you know, really fighting for your coworkers and, and the members and, and building those structures now. Uh, and I really hope that 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 is going to pay off in the long term in terms of because what you said already, there, there's a gigantic struggle there in terms of actually getting them to the table, getting a contract secured. Right. So uh, I really uh, I'm inspired to hear the work that y'all are doing and really appreciate that happening here in the South in particular. Uh, so what are some, you know, you, you mentioned Griffin and, and maybe uh, Fatu, you can you can take this. Uh, Griffin mentioned that that last over the last year that y'all have really been asserting yourselves as a union, even even before you get a contract, uh, you know, fighting for some, uh, you know, fighting for changes. Uh, what are some of the things that y'all have been able to win in Kentucky so far? So, um when Amazon come in, uh, talking to co-worker and letting them know that the union do not exist, so they outside uh, party, they're not part of uh, Amazon. So we demonstrate the, uh, by giving them the choice about uh, to sign to the constitution and let them give them choice to vote for what they want to be in the constitution. It demonstrates um, workers that they have a voice that whatever amazon was telling them is wrong so that's a big one because people was thinking that we're outsider we cannot you know we show them that you guys are uh, the union fatu who's helping outside cannot vote you guys who's working there vote so you guys are amazon because if you guys don't work today amazon do not exist so right. by doing this union uh you unionizing is unionizing amazon not an outside uh, party so that's a big one to my view because when we send that it demonstrates all the lies that amazon was telling them mm. right right yeah that, that's... yeah i think you asked you know um about yeah what we've won in the last year as well and i think um 
you know, it's it's a small victory, but before we raised the issue of translation and organized around it, you know, in just a few weeks, we had over a thousand of our coworkers sign on to that, many of whom maybe didn't sign a union card yet, right? So it was a way to convince, especially our immigrant coworkers, um, that the union was going to fight for them, that we would fight right. against discrimination, we would fight for these services. And, um, you know, suspiciously, after, you know, we delivered this petition uh, back in, I think, July, uh, management began offering more translation services, but, you know, it's funny, they put up slides and posters around the facility that said, we've offered translation services since last year in October when we rolled out this program. And, you know, so obviously uh, Amazon and these companies, they won't ever admit that, you know, anything that we did, anything that our workers right. did to fight for their own interest, you know, would, would ever come of, uh, of their own doing, you know, so they, you know, they've said that they've, offered some of these services and they have moved in a better direction. Um, but it's, it's nothing like what's actually needed here. Um, so I would count that as a small victory and, um, you know, in fighting Amazon's egregious, you know, uh, uh, appeals process, you know, we have been able to win a couple of our coworkers jobs back. Um, obviously putting pressure on, you know, some of these retaliatory actions, uh, the labor board helps that as well. Um, mm. but yeah, we've been, fighting them and uh, not claiming any easy victories, but, you know, um, fighting as hard as we can to stop these things. So, Then uh, uh, in the last couple of months, they did hire French-speaking uh, supervisor and a manager. Mm -hmm. That never happened there before. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> there are Amazon workers uh, in our area. There's a there's an Amazon um, facility here in Huntsville. Um, where can people reach y'all if uh, if they're an Amazon worker and they're interested in starting a campaign in their facility? Yeah, um, you know, we're available on all social media platforms. Uh, I would say go to unionizeamazonkcvg.org uh, to reach us on there. All our socials, you know, come off of there too. And, um, you know, if you're somebody that's fired up about what's happening in the labor movement, maybe you're not an Amazon worker yourself, but you support what we do, uh, go to unionizeamazonkcvg.org slash donate. And yeah, consider donating $30 to fight for $30 an hour at KCVG. Um, it goes a long way. Uh, you know, we're an independent grassroots effort. And, uh, you know, having those extra donations coming in means a jobs defense campaign. It means, you know, having money to keep the lights on at our office by the facility. And, um, Every small contribution goes a long way, so appreciate it. Griffin, Fatu, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Y'all keep up the good fight. Uh, so uh, here in Alabama, everybody knows that the big campaign is with the UAW, and last week we talked about the Hyundai, uh, the announcement that workers at Hyundai had hit 30%. Um, and we kind of alluded to the anti-campaign by KIV in the business class, um, but we didn't really dive too deep into it. And so we wanted to spend some time this morning talking about that. Um, and so right now in Alabama, there, there are probably some three or four thousand, three or four thousand auto workers that have signed cards. Uh, something like that. Uh, almost 50% at Mercedes and 30% at Hyundai. And the Council of Bosses, the Business Council of Alabama, and Governor Kay Ivey 
their response so far has basically there have been four key four key points in their anti-campaign. And that is one, that the UAW is an out-of-state special interest, and we don't like things that aren't from Alabama. The second is that unions are scary. And so under that, you've got some subheadings like uh, uh, you'll make too much money. That's scary. Uh, you'll have to pay dues. That's scary. And um, the employers won't be able to reward productive workers anymore. Very scary. Union's scary. So that's the second. Union's scary. The third is that you've got it good, actually. Uh, you should be thankful that we allow you to exist in this state and have a job. You're welcome. That's their argument. Uh, your, your life shouldn't be any better. That's number three. And number four is they're raising the specter of Detroit with the explicit argument that uh, the UAW is responsible for the decimation of the auto industry in the United States. So those are the four... Four main, uh, uh, four main pillars of their response. Out-of-state special interest, union scary, uh, you don't deserve a better life, and raising the specter of Detroit. So we're going to respond to those. Um, and first off is that the UAW is an out-of-state special interest group. And that is something that's word for word out of Kay Ivey's op-ed um, you know, I mean, it, it harkens back to, you know, the outside agitator slur in the right. civil rights movement, right? Um, we're all a part of, you know, whether or, you know, the uh, it, we're part of the same country, part of the same class, the working class, right? So I, uh, you know, I've got much more in common with a worker from Michigan than I do with, that, with, uh, with Kay a, Ivey. With Kay Ivey, right? So... So that's one thing. Just on its face, you know, it's kind of a silly thing. The UAW is an obviously American institution. Um, and so w whether or not the UAW is headquartered out of state, not super relevant. But it's also worth noting that uh, particularly in Mercedes, there has been, you know, ongoing and sporadic union activity basically since the plant opened. And uh, they've had an organizing committee there for years. And so when the momentum started to pick up around labor, uh, particularly after the UAW's contract, it was not the UAW that reached out to the people at Mercedes. It was the organizing committee at Mercedes that reached out to the UAW and said, uh, we're interested in unionizing. We think that, they, that we have a real shot right now and we want to take advantage of it. But, but... We feel like we've gotten screwed by the UIW in some of the uh, in some of our former campaigns. We feel like we have not been in control of it. We feel like the investment hasn't been there, and we've really been left in the lurch. Uh, and so you, we have to, we have to have your commitment that we're going to be in the driver's seat of this campaign, the people at Mercedes, and that uh, you know that as long as there's interest here, y'all aren't going to leave us in the lurch. And the UIW agreed to that. Uh, and the, the workers at Mercedes said, if you don't agree to this, we're going to form an independent union. Okay, so they, so obviously, particularly at Mercedes, saying that this campaign is being pushed by out-of-state special interests is just so far from the truth um, that it, it's it's hilarious. Uh, and then another thing that's worth noting noting about out-of-state special interests is that uh, the 
the employers that she is defending, not a single one of them are from the United States. They're all not even out-of-state special interests. They are literally foreign special interests, right? They're not even American companies. Mercedes, Hyundai, Toyota, Honda, all of these companies are from out of the United States. They are foreign entities. And these are the companies that she is standing in front of at the behest of serving while telling Alabama workers that if we organize in cooperation with other American workers, that makes us scary and outsiders, right? So it's just kind of, you know, that's an ironic thing that the workers are being tarred with this out-of-state slur while she is defending literal, actual foreign companies. Right. And then even and then even their United States headquarters are not in Alabama. There's not a single one of these companies that have their U.S. headquarters in Alabama. They're all outside of Alabama. So even the companies, insofar as they have an American presence, they're out-of-state special interests. It's just absurd. Unions. Are unions scary? Okay, so one of the things that they say in there, and they've got this website, Alabama Strong or whatever, that's the name of the campaign that the Council of Bosses is putting on in close coordination with the state government, which that almost like that seems like it should be illegal, the government uh, colluding with employers to try to dissuade uh, their workers from taking advantage of their constitutional rights. That's wild. That's legal. <laughs> um, but one of the things, I mean, literally, is that, uh, oh, your pay is going to be too high. And that's going to cause, uh, that's going to increase costs and it's going to uh, create tension, right? <laughs> it's going to create tension because you're going to increase the cost. You're going to make too much money and it's going to increase the tension on the shop floor. And, you know, um, I don't, I think the thing that actually causes tension is when workers' wages are falling and profits are rising. I think that's the thing that causes tension, and right. that's the thing that's been happening. These companies have all been seeing record profits, and workers' wages have been falling. In Alabama, Alabama auto workers make 11% less than they did 20 years ago. 11% less. That is a big chunk of change. So, no, I actually don't think that workers making more money is going to create a strained relationship. I think that that would actually probably make the relationship a little bit better, in fact. Make it a little bit easier to go to work. Make it a little bit easier to do what you're told. If you're paid more money, that's how it works for me anyway, right? The more money that you pay me, the more I'm willing to do whatever you want, right? <laughs> you know? Somebody asked me, like, I, I said something about, I don't know, like, uh, Something about yard work needing to be done, or maybe I—I I, I can't even remember what it was. I was talking to somebody, but but something needed to be done, and, and they were like, "Well, why don't you do it?" And I was like, "Well, you know, pay me forty bucks an hour, and I'll, <laughs> I'll take off of work and I'll do it for you." Right. So, uh, so yeah, you know, uh, it's actually gonna um, make the relationship have less friction, I think. There's also the uh, fear around paying dues. Right, dues are so scary, um, and actually, no, dues are very important because we have to have, as workers, 
resources to be able to organize and to be able to uh, support ourselves. And so if everybody gives a little bit, that turns into a lot of money, right? We don't have huge resources otherwise as a working class. We don't have the same resources that the owning class does. And so we have to all contribute a little so that we make so that we can end up with enough money to run an operation. It's the same way that church operates. You know, a lot of people go to church and a lot of people even uh, a lot of people even go beyond donating money monthly to their church. A lot of people tithe, like actually give 10% of their income. And I have never heard of union dues exceeding 1 to 2% of your income, right? It's and 1% is actually I've I've even heard of it being less. My dues are less than 1% of my income, actually. Like, actually, my dues are 0.5% of my income, okay? So it's a pretty good investment, actually. And in a lot of union workplaces, you're going to get health care that is miles above what you would get in a non-union workplace. You're going to have retirement plans, uh, potentially pensions, right? So union, uh, union dues are, in fact, the best investment that most working people make in their lives. There's there's so few, there are so few things that give you so much for so little monetary investment. And then there's the thing about the high achievers. And this is an interesting one because of a conversation that I had um, this weekend, actually yesterday, with a union leader. Um, and it's it was about the uh, the Decatur Hyosung plant. Uh, that's a formerly a Goodyear tire plant. Now it's owned by Hyosung, a South Korean company. And after Goodyear left, they switched the pay system from a piece rate system to an hourly rate. And so you know before actually this the South Korean company came in and, and bought the tire plant. They were the union had actually negotiated to pay based on production, right? And so the it, so one of the things that he was complaining to me about in their contract is that actually no, the company will not let us incentivize higher production, right? I mean, like just the total opposite. And that's obviously look, you know, I'm not saying that this is the way that every single but but what I'm saying is that the workers negotiate the contract. And so if being able to go above and beyond and make more money as a result of that is something that is important to a particular set of workers, that's something that they can get in the contract. And that is something that this union president was lamenting that the company refused to allow in the contract. Okay? Right? So... Uh, and, and, but but generally speaking, now it, it's true that generally you're not going to have a piece rate system of pay. That's not typically how most union contracts operate. But there are obviously ways in union contracts that employers can give bonuses or performance incentives, things like this. And the only difference, the only difference between being able to do that under a union contract and not doing it under a un- and doing it in a non-union shop is that there is standards. There are standards there, right? And it's not all willy-nilly at the whim of the boss, subject to favoritism. There are standards. And so, you know, that's the thing that actually employers don't like, right? 
because the employers want the unilateral authority to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and reward or punish anybody for any reason, right? And that's the thing that they don't like. That's the thing that they're concerned about. And also, Adam put in our notes stock uh, a very good point. Uh, here's a question for uh, anti-union people. Do all non-union shops reward high achievers, right? If you've, ever, if you've been in the workplace in the United States of America, chances are you've worked in a non-union shop before. There's <laughs> at least a 90% chance. <laughs> There's at least a 90% chance that you have worked in a non-union shop before. And think back to that job that you had, or maybe that you have. Does it reward high achievers? I mean, some do, sure. No doubt that 90% of the American workforce is non-union. So undoubtedly there are some that reward high achievers. But I know at multiple of my jobs, high achievers were not rewarded. In fact, and, and, and actually what happened is if you were a high achiever, you got more shit put on your plate. <laughs> right? Yep. Right? You do a good job and your reward is that you got to do more work. Okay? Right. So, <laughs> so, right. so there's some questions there for, for these people. That, that for obviously the question's not for the companies or for KIV because they know the answer and they know that they're full of crap and that they're trying to sell you a bag of crap, right? But for the people who are hearing KIV and who are hearing the council of bosses and say and, and they're saying things like, we won't be able to reward high achievers. You know, the, it's understandable that the first thing that you think is like, oh, well, if I work hard, I want to be rewarded for that. I want to be rewarded for that. That sounds good. Well, you know, just think about in your non-union job, are you rewarded for hard work? Right. Is Mercedes <laughs> and Hyundai really rewarding high achievers right now? What's stopping them from that? It's right. not the union. Right. Yep. They have literal unilateral. They can do anything that they want without the union there. And they're not doing it. And they didn't announced these raises at they they haven't announced a big raise at Mercedes but they announced you know fairly substantive raises at Hyundai and at Toyota they didn't announce those until the UAW contracts came out putting pressure on those companies they could have done that at any point at any time over the last several years the money has always been there to make this decision they only chose to do it because they were concerned about their workers standing up. Okay, so that's number one and number two. We have successfully dismantled with facts and logic the first and the second. Out-of-state special interests, the UAW, not really, not really. And also, if we want to talk about special interests, let's look at the foreign car companies, okay? Second, are unions scary? No, not really. Uh, it'll be good for you if you make more money. Dues are a good investment, and uh, you can obviously reward high achievers and high productivity workers in a union shop. The only difference is that, uh, you know, you got to have a process for it, and you can't just do it, uh, you know, based on favoritism. And also, non-union shops don't all reward high productivity workers. <laughs> okay, so number three, their third argument is that you don't deserve to have a better life. And that's what it comes down to, right? That's what it comes down to. You don't deserve to have it better than you have right now because right now you are highly skilled and highly paid, according to the governor of the state of Alabama. You are highly paid. Not, not like, you know, 
highly paid. That is a that that's a strong word. It is not um, you know, you are well paid or you are uh, you know, paid competitive to the market or you are adequately adequately paid. You are highly paid. That would actually being highly paid actually kind of implies that you probably should be making less, right? That's that's the implication of Kay Ivey saying that Alabama auto workers are highly paid. If you're highly paid, then that's kind you're pretty lucky actually. Maybe you don't even deserve that is kind of the implication there. You're highly paid. Well, uh, Alabama auto workers are not highly paid, actually. Alabama auto workers are paid significantly less than auto workers in the rest of the country. Alabama auto workers are also paid significantly less than Alabama auto workers 20 years ago. 11% less. 11% less than auto workers in this state 20 years ago. The average Alabama auto worker wage right now is $64,000, something like that. $64,000 is the median, okay? That is the median wage. That means half of the people make more than that, and half of the people make less than that, okay? And saying that the median is $64,000 really does not do justice to people who are coming into the workforce and trying to get a job. Because if you if you graduate high school, you don't want to go to college, you want to work in industry, and uh, you're looking at the auto industry, and, and the governor says, oh, wow, I'm highly paid. And then you look at the stats, and you say, and you see that the the median Alabama auto worker makes $64,000. You say, wow, $64,000 right out of high school? That sounds like something that, that you know, that's not too bad, making $64,000 right out of high school. Um. And if that was the case, that wouldn't be too bad. If you started at $64,000 and then you increased, that would actually, you know, we would be talking about being, you know, adequately compensated, something like that. Uh, but actually, if the median is 64000 that means half of the workers make less than that. And if you come in, all of these auto companies have implemented a tiered compensation system. That means that if you go into work at any of these companies... You will, you don't even have the chance, talk about rewarding high productivity workers, you don't even have the chance to make as much money, the top wage, as people who have been there for 10 years. Your top out rate is lower than theirs is, and it will never be the same as theirs. Right? I mean, there's no incentive there to move, there's no possibility to move into the first tier of employment the second tier and you're stuck there forever making between 50 and 80 percent less than other workers doing the same job in the same facility and you've also got the plague of temporary employees who uh typically make 50 percent less something like 50 percent less than other auto workers uh with no guarantee of moving into permanent employment while you're a temporary employee you don't get the same benefits you don't get the same leave you don't get the same uh rights on the job that the you know you you only really have rights on the job if you're in a union workplace but uh in a non-union workplace sometimes after 90 days or something after on a probationary period you'll you'll be granted 
some privileges that the company can take away at any time for any reason, but as long as it's fine for them, they're going to give you these privileges. You don't even get that as a temporary employee, and you don't. there's no like time scale to get on. It's just kind of at the whim of, of the employers. At some places, there's a time scale, but again, it's at the whim of the employers, and in some places, it's not. You can be a temp for five years, ten years. So, um, actually... I think Alabama auto workers, uh, their their lives should be better. Actually, that's my hot take. Alabama auto workers uh, deserve more, uh, as opposed to KIV's position that they don't deserve more. And then finally, the specter of Detroit. And this is probably uh, the most scary to um, to auto workers in the state of Alabama because this has been beat into our heads. Uh, from, you know, I mean, for people like me in my age cohort, basically all of our lives, that's all that we've heard is that the unions are responsible for the decimation of the American auto industry. Um, and that just does not square with the facts. <clears throat> that does not square with the reality. With the reality of the fact that the UAW since the 1970s has been taking concessionary contracts, not having raises to meet inflation, cutting pensions, cutting health care. Since the 1970s through to 2008, every single contract was a concession on the part of the workers. All the while, executive compensation continued to increase. The executives were not taking concessions. They were not making concessions. They continued to make more while the workers took concessions. And then in 2008, uh, the auto workers gave more concessions that they ever have, than they ever have. Billions of dollars taken from the pockets of auto workers to save the American auto industry. And they still have not gotten back everything that they lost in 2008. Even after these record contracts, they still have not gotten back everything that they lost. And yet, automotive executives in the big three make more money than they ever have in the history of the company. Right? And so, when we actually look at... And then, also, they haven't been, they haven't been playing this card too much yet, interestingly, um, but no doubt they will. And that card is the uh, the corruption card, the union corruption card. Now, one reason maybe they aren't playing it is because uh, the, the the there's common knowledge that the the leadership in the UAW is a new reform leadership that ran explicitly in part against corruption. And so maybe that's one reason they're not playing it right now. Um, but there was corruption in the UAW. Uh, there were there was bribery from the companies to the union leaders, and uh, multiple union leaders have gone to prison for it from the UAW. And also, this isn't really talked about, but so have car executives, car company executives. And so you got to think about that for a second, and, th and and think about that in the context of the talking point that unions are responsible for the decimation of the American auto industry. Okay, so you've got this talking point. Unions were so greedy that they took so much money from the companies that they went bankrupt. At the same time they're doing this, they're also, it later comes out, taking bribes from the company, bribes so egregious that they had to go to jail for it, right? And so then if you think about those at the, in the, in the same, at the same time, that kind of becomes hard to square, right? What is going on here? The companies are bribing the union to 
take so much money from them that they go bankrupt? Is that what's going on? No, that's not actually what's going on. <laughs> right? The car the car executives are bribing the UAW leaders to take more and more concessions to not fight on behalf of their members. That's what actually happened in reality. Okay? So no, the UAW was not you cannot make the case with the facts. With the facts. You cannot make the case that the UAW was responsible for the decimation of the auto industry. What you're left with is globalization ushered in haphazardly by Democrats and Republicans in the 90s with NAFTA and bad financial decisions by the American automakers. That's what you're left with. And that actually squares with reality, right? That actually makes much more sense with what we know about the facts on the ground. So <clears throat> those are the things that... Uh, um, you know, those are basically the four things that that the uh, uh, that the campaign is centered around right now, and uh, those are things that you should think about as they make these arguments. Um, you know, it's also worth knowing, going back to the third point, that that you don't deserve a better life if you're an American auto worker. Thinking about the safety issue, you know, I mean, the safety issue is huge. Uh, Alabama auto workers are much are in much 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 more danger <clears throat> than auto workers in the rest of the country, and so. Uh, you know, the way to address that is a union contract, a safety committee, safety, real safety protections in your contract, uh, because the company is not going to do it on their own. And the state of Alabama has no safety department and no safety inspectors, so they're not going to help you out. And the Federal uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration is so overburdened and understaffed and underfunded that they're probably not going to be able to help you either. So you got to do it yourself. You got to unionize, get a union contract, and get some good safety protections in there and have a union safety committee. That's the thing that's actually going to help you. So, uh, yeah, that's, I, I think that's kind of my, my, my spiel on the anti-UAW campaign here in the state of Alabama. I wrote a much more condensed version of that in AL.com, you can find, and the Alabama Political Reporter. Um, so, uh, so, Adam, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I just want to say it's worth repeating that the status quo that they're defending is not working for working people, right? Alabama is one of the worst places to be a working class person in the entire developed world. Where would you rather be than Alabama? Well, there's a hell of a lot of places as a worker when it comes to your compensation, your safety, your benefits, your rights, your quality of life. Alabama ranks at or near the bottom of everything good, at or near the top of everything bad. Right. You just name it. Right. Look at the statistic. Whatever it may be, if it's about our quality of life, it's about uh, anything involving what it's like to be a regular, everyday person in Alabama. You know, it's it's atrocious. It's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable, and that's what they're defending. It's not working for most people. We. I think intuitively recognize that, though in some senses, I think a lot of people in Alabama um, aren't sure it could ever be better, mm. I think is part of the problem. But, you know, that's the model that they defend where we, the taxpayers, fund economic development. We fund the profit generation of these massive corporations, both through our tax dollars and through our labor. 
right? And, and that's just, it's wild that, you know, that's the status quo that is being defended here uh, because Alabama pitches itself to companies like Hyundai and Mercedes with cheap labor, right? right. They, they sell themselves, hey, you're going to get hostility to the unions from our government. You're going to get cheap, less educated labor that you can pay less, that you can treat worse. Mm-hmm. You might even get convicts. You might even get children to work for you. Don't worry. We're not going to look too hard, right? You can pollute the environment. Don't worry. No one's going to be checking up on that. Not in Alabama, right? And that's what they want to defend. And they think that is good enough for you and me. Yeah. And I don't. And, and I think there's a lot of people in Alabama who know that we deserve better and know that you know, the tremendous wealth that we create, at least some of it ought to go back to us, right? Right? Not yeah. just out-of-state investors, not just out-of-country investors, not just big corporations, not just the wealthy property-owning elite, the big landowners and the big mules in Montgomery who run this state, right? Not just the Business Council of Alabama, but what if everyday working people were actually benefiting from the wealth creation in the state of Alabama. So, yeah, I I appreciate you really dispelling these arguments and putting something out. Uh, You know, your longer version is an AL political reporter, uh, the short version, AL.com. Y'all definitely, uh, folks listening, you know, share that around. Um, If you know anyone working in the auto industry in Alabama, talk to them about the union. Listen to them. Listen to what concerns they may have. Hear out what kind of anti-union garbage they've heard, because there's a lot of it. There's so much of it that flies around, um, that is circulating from low-level managers, from uh, people at the top, uh, and everything in between, from other workers who've been, you know, just bombarded with propaganda, um, and you know, something maybe we can talk about here in a sec is the need for labor media to be able to combat this kind of stuff. Mm. But, you know, that's a separate conversation. But, yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I think it's it's a broken status quo that they're defending. The facts bear that out. And it's just going to be up to working people to organize and, and to build a better Alabama that really works for all of us. And I think the UAW organizing in these auto uh, facilities is a huge, huge piece of that. It, it's a historic move. And if and when we see these victories, I think it, it's really going to lend um, a lot of people power to Alabama. Yeah. We've got a caller on the line from a 352 area code. Let's bring him uh, or her on the line. Uh, 352 area code, what's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, hello? Hey, Hi. how's it going? Hey, guys can hear me? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. How, how you guys doing today? Uh, it's uh, Brandon uh, Hill. I've called in before. Great. Great. Yeah. From uh, uh, from Amazon in Kentucky at the same plant that we were just talking to those other folks from. Yeah, they had re- uh, we had um, we were in a. How was it that we got connected with? Was that with the was that in the Chris Townsend? One of our Chris Townsend threads? I'm sure it was. Yeah, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. So it was a roundabout connection that 
it just sort of landed in our lap here at the last minute. Uh, was glad to hear some some of the struggle there happening in Kentucky. And yeah, curious to know, Brandon, what you think and and what what you have to report on there. Yeah, well, well uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you, uh, thank you guys again for reporting on this because you know we get a little bit of media coverage, but not nearly enough, I think. Um, and we've gotten a little bit recently uh, from some local channels, which is nice. Um, but yeah, well, if I could just speak to what you guys were just talking about, um, you know, the sort of anti-union uh, efforts going on uh, down there with the, you know, uh, states trying to discourage folks from unionizing uh, within the auto worker industry. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's just a shame. And, um, you know, I spoke, I think I spoke about it a little bit before when I uh, when I called in before, but I used to live in Florida uh, for mm. years, like over 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I experienced the same thing. I would, you know, try to work jobs. Uh, a lot of jobs I'm trying to get were, you know, not unionized. And I was sitting there competing with the with jobs with people that were like, you know, uh, 45, 55 years old, people who didn't mm. have any sort of retirement or 401ks or anything like that. And there was just nothing to really you know, there was nothing to really uh, support or help these people. So, like, yeah, we need, like, unionized jobs and industries, especially in the South. Um, right. And and everywhere, right? Everywhere and in every industry. And there's nothing saying that, like, service industry jobs can't be good union jobs, right? Auto jobs are good union jobs in certain areas because we organized and made them that way, right? They used to really suck, and they still do suck in the non-union places, right? So... Yeah, I'm with you, Brandon. Right, exactly. And, and you know, I and I just read about uh, what I guess out in California. They have like a service uh, industry workers union they're trying to form out there. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's great. That is great. Yeah. Um, but I, if, if I could just, I guess from that lead into what's going on here at uh, with our campaign at Amazon KCBG. Um, so we are in the middle of a a very, uh, very strong anti-union campaign being led by Amazon now. Um, I, I believe last time I called in with you guys and really had a chance to talk, it, it felt like it really hadn't, you know, really hadn't swung um, as strongly as it has now. But, yeah, we're in the thick of it. And they're, they're spending a lot of money on, like, posters and these captive audience meetings, which, I, which I've been to over three now. Um, wow. And yeah, and you folks, I know you just you just talked to Griffin there, and he's one of the lead organizers of this campaign, and they just fired him, and they, uh, you know, they claimed they claimed it was for another reason, but I think it's pretty obvious that it's you know for the organizing, right? Um, but, but yeah, so and uh, yeah, it, it's really picking up. In fact, I've had two people I work with, like right right with alongside me in the same department, get fired recently. Wow. Uh, one of them was an, act, an active organizer in this campaign, and Amazon found, you know, they, they can't fire him for that, I, I believe. And so they found another reason to get rid of this person. And then I had uh, another associate, a friend of mine who I work with, who, you know, signed a card, wore the buttons. They weren't actively an active organizer, but, you know, they were involved enough for Amazon to, you know, see them as a target, I guess. Right. Um, yeah, so that's going on, but uh, but you know, it's not discouraging us. I feel like if anything, this is just uh, reinforcing our resolve here, um, because I have seen, you know, I've seen a lot of support uh, come out for this thing over the past year that we've been doing this, 
Um, and I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I actually, I haven't had a chance to see this whole interview you guys just did, but um, I'm sure they talked about how we're in the process of, uh, we're in the process of writing our constitution. We're in the process mm-hmm. of voting on that. Now. Um, and I, I was involved. I was on the uh, constitution committee there uh, helping to, to write this thing out. And we're going to, we're going to see if folks approve of the rough draft here. And then if, you know, if they don't, we're going to go back to square one, but yeah, I think it's a really great first step in showing, um, you know, the workers where I work at that, like, yeah, this isn't some kind of outside thing. Like this is, this is a rank and file uh, movement and we're all involved with this. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like it disproves some of the anti-union talking points that Amazon has been thrown at us. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I really appreciate, you know, what y'all are doing and, and trying to, like I mentioned earlier, you know, in, in building your capacity, even before, you know, it's all official, before there's an election, before there's a contract. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, workers are going to have to do, right? We're going to have to organize it and build our unions even before they're legally recognized. Before we get to an election, we have to act like a union. We have to organize our coworkers. We have to build our structures and capacity up uh, for these monumental fights because with Amazon, it really is a David and Goliath fight, right? So uh, I'm glad to hear, Brandon, that the uh, the, the resolve is being strengthened and, and folks are not getting as discouraged as they could be. Um, you know, I, I know that Amazon's going to do everything they can to target folks. They're going to find little, you know, excuses here and there, where, whatever they can get away with, right? And and even stuff that they know they can't get away with long term, they're going to still try it. Uh, and so the more y'all can just look out for one another and support each other, lift each other up is going to be really huge and keep those relationships and solidarity together. Definitely. Definitely. I, I feel like, right. Um, it, yeah. when we've gotten a lot of support from the community here. I'm sure, you know, other folks have talked about how uh, a lot of the local unions have come out to support us, nice. um, the local iron workers well, and, great. uh, yeah, in fact, those those guys are the they're the they're the union that built our facility that we actually work in, and I'm not sure if anybody's spoken about this before, um, but one one of those workers actually lost his life building that facility there. Wow. Um, and Amazon uh, and the, I believe the Iron Workers Union wanted to put a plaque up to commemorate him, and Amazon said that they they thought that that would be too depressing, so they didn't they didn't yeah. want they didn't allow people to do that. So. Um, I just wanted to put that out there, but we've gotten a lot of support from local iron workers and we've gotten, now we're getting support from the, the DHL teamsters from across the street who have been very inspired to me personally. And yeah, man, I feel like that this is, it's, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it's, this is an uphill battle. We're going up against like some, uh, you know, one of the biggest corporations in the world, but I feel like, um, I, I feel like we, we there's a lot of positive energy going in here, and we have a ton of community support, and I feel like we're on the right side of this. So, uh, yeah, oh, wow. uh, I'm in, I'm in a, a good mood about it. So, fantastic. Yeah, really appreciate that report, Brandon. Man, that's great to hear. Uh, I think there's just a lot of positive energy in the labor movement overall. That you know, the more we see each other fighting, the more it <laughs> inspires us to fight more, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think. I think that's great to hear that the locals in the area are coming out and supporting y'all. That's what, that's what it's going to take. You know, we all have to pitch in and, and contribute where we can so uh, so we can win these victories. So 
keep up the good work and, and definitely keep us posted. Yeah. Thanks for the call. Thank you, fellow workers. Appreciate you. Appreciate the support. Yep. Take care, brother. All right. Um, so school choice, we talked about this during the legislative ups- update. I wanted to dive into this a little bit more. Um, the There are multiple visions. Of course, there, there are, I mean, there is, I mean, just, just several different visions of, of school choice, uh, school privatization, I think it's more accurate, um, that are um, go, trying to be implemented across the country or have been implemented across the country. Uh, but here in Alabama, we've got basically two, right? Um, we, we've got two. We've got the kind of the most extreme version being put forward by State Representative er- Ernie Yarbrough and um, then a more moderate version being put forward by uh, the governor, uh, Ledbetter, and Arthur Orr. Um, Ledbetter is the uh, state Spe- house speaker. Is right. that is That's okay. correct. Yeah, and Arthur Orr is, what is he, the education committee chair? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, Bud- so education budget committee chair. Education yeah. budget committee chair, yeah. So these are the you know pretty powerful kind of people in Alabama politics, especially on the education issue. And so if they're pushing this more moderate, uh, one that's pro- that would be the more likely one to go through, but there could be some complications about well, are people going to get so spun up on on Yarbrough's plan uh, that they're that the Republicans would vote down the more moderate version of it, and so we'll we'll have to kind of tell. But but Adam, can you give me the um, more details about the 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 two plans and and what their similarities are and and what the differences are sure yeah so this let's start with the choose act which is the one you mentioned that that's pushed by leadership and um what it would do is basically create tax credits uh so for the first two years it would offer a tax credit of up to seven thousand dollars for households making up to 300 percent of the poverty level or about seventy five thousand dollars a year for a family of three and this tax credit could be used towards private school tuition. The income cap would be lifted in the third year of the program, right? So it's a gradually phased in. Not every family is going to be immediately uh, eligible for it. My understanding is also that, that uh, special education students will also be eligible in this first early, uh, early phase in. Um, and so... The governor's calling for about $100 million to fund this off the first year, um, and naturally it's going to raise. Um, the The other bill being pushed by Yarbrough is actually a little bit more expansive. Uh, it's got less of a phase-in, it's got less of a cap, um, and so it would be more expensive, and it's just more broad in like how it can be used. Um, so the $7,000 you know, tax credit you get is for the private school tuition under the Choose Act. Um, it's a smaller amount, I believe, a $2,000 amount for homeschooling. Mm. Uh, whereas my understanding with the more extreme bill is it's just like, here's here's the flat amount, whether you're homeschooling, whether you're private school, um, you know, it's a lot more flexible in terms of what it can be spent on. Mm. Uh, so it's definitely more extreme in terms of its cost to the budget, in terms of its overall, you know, privatization aspects. Um, something that's worth noting is that the governor also mentioned, like in her state of the state address earlier this this past week, 
that she wants to have the highest teacher salaries in the South mm. and wanted to increase the starting salaries for teachers. And so you can kind of see what what's happening here is um, they're dangling higher teacher salaries in exchange for more school choice, more school privatization. Uh, Alabama already ranks in the top 20 in terms of school choice, like mm. by the people who, you know, create these lists. Right. And we're not in the top 20 when it comes to teacher salaries. Let me tell you that much. Our per pupil funding for sure. Right. So because the state of Alabama already has charter schools that are legalized, the state of Alabama already has the Alabama Accountability Act, which is a voucher like program. It's private school scholarships. Uh, it's also a tax write off for wealthy donors who want to give to these programs. Mm. Uh, and so that has already cost the Education Trust Fund budget hundreds of millions of dollars in over the past decade um, and already, you know, funneled public dollars into private pockets. And that's ultimately what this is all about. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if the far right will be satisfied by Governor Ivey's bill. Um, mm. it, it does touch on state accredited private schools, is my understanding. Uh, so, like I said, it's a little bit more restrictive in what the money can be spent on and, and where it can be directed um, and more limited in its, in its rollout. And so will that be enough to satisfy the like school choice extremist? And they're out there. Uh, they have been pushing for a very long time to destroy public education. Ultimately, you have kind of a coalition. You have the big money interests who stand to profit. And so you have capitalist interests who see public education as a potential pool of money to tap into. Right. Uh, and then you have the reactionary segregationist ideology that is motivating so many of these uh, these f forces behind this, um, you know, pushing for religious fundamentalist instruction, right? They want to be able to indoctrinate children and you pay for it as a taxpayer. That's what they're asking for, um, which is ironic, right? Because a whole big piece of the Alabama Republican Party's platform and its current shenanigans is this idea that there are, you know, quote unquote, woke teachers and right. grooming and indoctrinating students. Right. And there are woke librarians who are, you know, harming your children with library books. Um, and so they've got this narrative out there that this is happening. And make no mistake, that is part of the puzzle, right? That is part of weakening the reputation of public education. That is part of driving demands for alternatives to public education, right? So they sabotage the public schools with these narratives, with the underfunding, with all the different ways in which public schools are held back from their potential. Uh, and this creates this demand among what is still a very small minority of parents. Make no mistake about that. Most families are perfectly happy with their public school. Are there things that they would want to see improved? Sure. But most families are not out here looking for this. Uh, and that's even where it's available, because in many in, in some of the uh, Democrats in the legislature have made this point. Hey, there's a lot of counties that don't even have alternative schools besides the public schools. There's plenty of places where there is nowhere else to go. So like 
is this even going to provide a choice? Now, the other concern, and, and we talked with Dr. Josh uh, Cowan, um, what was it, two weeks ago or a week or two, a week or two ago, and I really recommend you check that out if you haven't uh, seen that interview because he absolutely you know, did a great job explaining the scam behind these voucher programs. But uh, kind of to that point, I'm concerned that there could be an influx of new private schools. You know, Bubba's Bible School opens up down at the strip mall to try to take advantage of these, uh, you know, tax subsidies, basically, right. which, you know, that is a real concern, I think. Um, we know that this is not about improving academic outcomes for children. That's not part of it. Right. Um, and increasingly, the proponents don't even try to pretend that's part of it. What I'm noticing a lot more and more, it's about um, reactionary ideology. It's about right. it's the fundamentalism around free market. And, well, this should be a, you know, free market institution just like anything else. And you should be able to choose and purchase and shop on the marketplace for your child's education just like you do their tennis shoes. Uh, so there's that ideology aspect behind it. But also this, you know, phenomena referenced earlier about, you know, quote unquote, woke socialist agenda. That's mm -hmm. literally in the Alabama Republican Party's platform this year is that there is a woke socialist agenda that is being pushed through our public schools, through our public libraries, and that they have to combat that. Uh, of course, it, it, it's not even in touch with reality. Right. They couldn't explain what they mean by that if you asked them. These people have never read Karl Marx, actually. They don't know what it is they're even talking about. Right. It's just euphemisms, right? Uh, and you can fill in the blanks in your own mind, whatever group of people you don't like, whatever group you have some bigotry against, you know, you can associate it with it. Um, now, Adam, I, uh, you know, as we're going down, I, I want to back up just a little bit um, and, and get maybe just a bit more fidelity on on the the Choose Act. And then I, I want to go into how the AEA is is responding to this or 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 might respond to this. Um, so on the some more details on, on the Choose Act, just for a, a reference, how you said it would it would earmark basically a hundred million dollars. How how much is the education budget in you know the last year or for this year? What is it slated to be? Is it isn't it like eight billion or something somewhere around eight billion dollars? Yeah, so it is definitely in that that neighborhood. Let's see if I can find it real quick. And um, then the more radical version of school choice, Yarbrough's uh, bill, that is projected, or at least a previous version of unlimited universal school choice, was estimated to cost what five hundred fifty million. Yes, it was several hundred million dollars more yeah. than, you know, what we're talking about with this Choose Act. But again, this is the initial roll in, right? It right. only grows more expensive yes, over time. That was my that was my next question is you, you said that it, it grows more expensive over time. Is the is the increase in the cap of a hundred million dollars, is that increase an automatic ramp up built into the act where, you know, if you do nothing, the default in the Choose Act is that in year two, it goes to 
you know, just a number, let's say 150 million, and then the year after that it goes to 200? Or is it that the Choose Act is being introduced as a um, as an introduction with the implication that we're going to come back down the road, and if this is working, we're going to do another bill? No, my understanding is it, it is phased up. Hmm as it's phased in right and so it those increases will be built into it um that yeah 100 million is where it starts but it is will by the definition of the bill increase and so will it increase to the the ultimately the um the the more radical universal 7000 anybody for anything no straight yeah that's hard to say honestly that is hard to say at this time i think it's it's a little early um right now it's going to take some real analysis to figure out how much would this actually cost you know and and you know it gets kind of wonky especially with them classifying this as a tax credit right um you know it's it's you know and i just want to say on that note we could just do a child tax credit for right. every family in Alabama, similar to the, the pandemic era federal tax credit. A lot of states have done that kind of thing, uh, and it, it's very successful. Yeah. It is very successful. It turns out if you just give families a little extra cash, uh, they will spend it right. to help themselves, and it grows the economy, and they're a little bit less poor and a little bit less desperate. And, you know, that would give families a resource. And if they decided to spend it on private schools, okay, whatever floats your boat, right? But that seems to be, to me, a much more common sense proposal. Um, but that wouldn't achieve the objective of right. weakening public education. Because, again, remember that for the folks pushing this stuff, they don't actually believe in such a concept as the public, so that is where, you know, we have a big problem. And so the, the people that are basically tasked with defending public education is the AEA. Ultimately, that's who it's going to fall to. Um, you said that you got, a, you got an op-ed recently from their journal about this, uh, about school choice, the issue. Um, uh, what is your read on um, the, the tack that they're going to take this year, this yeah. legislative session? Yeah, so, I mean, so the Alabama Education Association is the biggest education group, right? They represent the, the majority of the employees in the state. Um, of course, so they're not the only group, right? The school superintendents have their own organization. Um, the administrators do as well. The school board members do as well. Uh, and those can be quite powerful in their lobbying presence. But... Yeah, you know, the Alabama Education Association, ultimately, that's kind of, it's going to be whether or not they can lead the fight in defeating this. Um, and as we've talked a little bit about on the show before, their approach in the last several years um, has been to be friendly to the Republican supermajority. And by friendly, I mean basically play possum during the legislative session, not put up too much of a public, you know, fight, uh, and during campaign cycles, give millions of dollars to Republican candidates. They gave some money to Democrats as well, but basically their approach was whoever was most likely to win is who they gave money to. I mean, it's a pretty simple buy your influence kind of scheme. Um, and so arguably, 
they've seen some success with that, right? Because from 2010 to like 2015, 16, they got their ass kicked mm. tremendously on every front. That's when the charter schools were legalized. That's when the Accountability Act was passed. That's when tenure was watered down. It's when a second tier of retirement pensions were created. It's when Alabama had some of the steepest cuts to K-12 education after the recession of any state in the country and on and on and on. Right. So for like five, six years, they got their ass totally handed to them. So they took a different approach, which was if we can't beat them, we'll join them. Mm. Um, and so we'll play nice with them. Uh, we'll give them lots of cash come campaign season. Uh, we will hopefully buy enough favor that they'll kind of leave us alone every year. Uh, and we can keep growing the budget and growing teacher salaries. And so they've had some success over the last few years in doing that, arguably. The budgets have grown. Uh, salaries have grown. There hasn't been a huge expansion of school choice in the last few years. But circling in the background, you know, these past mm -hmm. few years has been these pushes for school choice alongside the various reactionary ideological attacks about wokeness and socialism and all this other garbage. Um, and they've been real quiet. They've been real quiet. Uh, they did put out some strong language in their new journal that, that I got in the mailbox yesterday. And it was pretty strong on the school choice scam. Um, but the interesting thing to watch is, you know, where, where does that lead? Right. It's one thing to put a, you know, strong op-ed in your own journal, but are you activating members to put that message out? Uh, are your members going to be expected to call legislators and email and show up in Montgomery? Um, are you going to run a media blitz, either paid or earned? Um, are you going to call out some of these politicians that you've given money to? And that's going to be interesting to watch is let's take a look at all the politicians who've gotten a vote contributions and where do they line up on school choice? Because it's going to kind of have you know be egg on your face if you gave money to people who didn't v stab you in the back right right um so that'll be interesting to watch um frankly my assessment of alabama's educators is that they are just disorganized um the aea is in many ways a company union right your boss literally can join your principal your superintendent your hr director they can join the association and believe me a lot of times they do and a lot of times that's who is catered to um and so that's a dynamic that is uh problematic i guess mm -hmm. you could say right. uh when the people who are supposed to represent you are also the people punishing you um so that's a interesting dynamic for them to deal with um but alabama educators are in my experience and in my assessment, very disengaged from all this. Mm. And that's part of the issue is educators alongside parents, students, and our allies have to organize to defend public education and to improve public education. And, and the, the, you have to do both, right? We have to defend it from getting worse. We have to defend our budget from all these ways to siphon money out through tax credits and through voucher schemes and all this other stuff. But we also have to be putting forward a proactive vision of what better public schools could look like, right? So that people aren't as interested in school choice alternatives. Right. And we do need to make our public schools better in Alabama. 
right? I, again, check the metrics. It's clear that we need to do that. And part of that is because it's a reflection of the communities in which they serve. And when Alabama is, you know, again, last, it, most everything is going to trickle into the schools. But these are all issues that need to be addressed. Um, and so we'll see what happens with the big school choice push. If it passes, um, you know, will it be over ADA's opposition or will they kind of stay quiet this this during this battle? Um, will they will the higher teacher salaries be enough to kind of buy their si silence, I think, is, is going to be one of the questions. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. My personal belief is that educators in Alabama are going to have to save themselves. Hmm. It's not going to come from, you know, the school board members and the superintendents. It's not going to come from the bureaucrats at AEA in Montgomery. Um, I think that's obvious if you look at the look at the evidence, look at your working conditions, look at what your students are experiencing every day, you know, and and I couldn't help but notice in that AEA journal, yeah, there were some strong words about vouchers from the executive director, but the very first page, the very first article talked about starting another successful legislative session for mm. students and educators of Alabama. Mm. Educators of Alabama, how successful do you feel these sessions have been for you? And will, will a higher salary be enough for you? Right. Will that address the lack of class size limits? Will that address the broken playgrounds and the moldy ceilings? Will it address um, the planning time that you're not getting that's being violated repeatedly without consequence? Will it address the terrible working conditions so many of our educators are experiencing in so many schools across the state, the high turnover? I'm sorry, but I don't think salary alone can cut it. And I've always believed that, and I've believed that since, um, you know, I called out Superintendent Casey Rodinsky in the Huntsville Times years and years ago, and he wanted to do that same thing and make it a salary issue. Right. But it's not just about salary, right? There's a lot more to it. And I've talked with probably hundreds, if not well over a thousand educators in my life. And yeah, they all wanted to be paid better, but they all wanted to be treated better. They all wanted the tools and resources and capacity to be effective at their job. They wanted justice for their mm -hmm. students. And I don't see anyone really pushing for that. Right. And so there's a lot more that we could be doing. And my advice, my suggestion, my open call to educators is to learn from what folks have done in other states. And I would encourage the most forward thinking educators in this state to organize a caucus amongst themselves that can operate both inside and outside of these institutions um, and develop this positive vision of what public schools in Alabama can really look like, but will only be achieved if there's a real movement behind it. And so educators have to come together. I would encourage educators to learn from the Chicago uh, Teachers Union and the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators or from the movement of rank-and-file educators in New York, or from the red state revolts, right? From Arizona to West Virginia to Kentucky. It's not a secret. It can work. It can work. Um, but educators have to kind of seize the day 
And I know that you're tired and I know that you're busy and I know you're demoralized. And, and so are auto workers and so are uh, Starbucks baristas and so are all of us, right? We're all tired. We're all busy. We're all demoralized. But that's my belief that schools in Alabama are always going to be under attack. They're never going to get better until the educators band together with the parents and the students and the community allies and really change the dynamics. Why don't you have collective bargaining in this state? And why isn't anyone asking? Why don't you even have paid parental leave in this state? A, a profession that's 80% female and you don't even have maternal leave. In the year 2024. It's ridiculous. So. One, one more thing that I, I think we should just say on the AEA strategy to combat this uh, is they have recently brought on a Republican political consultant to help them message their anti-school uh, choice campaign. So, Well, that's interesting. I mean, and they're doing a delicate dance of trying yeah. to appease conservative rural whites while disproportionately relying upon their black membership. You yep. go to AEA events, and it's going to be heavily African-American yep. in terms of who's actually participating, who's actually serving in local officer roles, who's actually serving as building reps, who's going to the delegate assembly. It's disproportionately black folks who are joining and participating. But at the same time, politically, they are trying to cater to a much more conservative rural white base that they have been really, you know, struggling to re recruit and retain in their membership. Uh, you know, while also, I guess, trying to make peace with the political realities in Alabama. And I get it. But, you know, it, that's the approach they've taken. And um, I don't think that it's sustainable in the long term. Right. You go to bed with snakes, eventually you're going to get bit. Yep. All right. That's going to be it for us this week, folks. Appreciate your time. TVLR.fm slash donate. Make a one-time or monthly recurring donation. Uh, find us, uh, TVLR.fm. Subscribe to our newsletters, Last Week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch. Um, subscribe. Like the stream on your way out. Subscribe to the channel. Uh, like the podcast. Uh, give us a five-star rating if you haven't. Appreciate everybody's time. Y'all have a good one. See you next week. Solidarity, y'all.